0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. It is a difficult thing to praise God when nothing's going right. We love to praise when everything's going well, but uh, we're going to be seeing when we compare the Psalms that David wrote at this uh, juncture uh, together with this passage that David was able to praise even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. 1 Samuel 21 beginning at verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Benakish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our joy and our pleasure to study it and to seek to live it out. And we pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, uh, William Collin asked me an excellent question uh, after the worship service. He said, okay, it's obvious that Jesus interpreted the passage we looked at uh, last week as being a favorable thing that Jesus, uh, uh, that uh, David had done. But if Jesus had not done that, how would we know whether it was a good thing or whether it was a bad thing? Because remember, he violated the ceremonial law, but in this case, God said that was an okay thing to do. So how do we interpret historical passages? It's obvious we can't just imitate everything David did. Uh, David did some pretty lousy things later on in his life. So how do we know? This is an issue of hermeneutics, which is just a big $10 word that means how you interpret uh, the scripture. Well, uh, what I wanna do during the introduction section is I wanna take you back into my study and what some of the behind the scenes work goes into understanding a passage like this. And I'll start with the, the short answer. When you're looking at historical passages, sometimes there's hints right within the passage itself as to whether an action is good or whether it is bad. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, when David uh, gets all of his men and they're going to go after Nabal and kill him, the text itself indicates that that was a sin and David later realizes that that was a sin. So sometimes the text itself really frames the question in a way where you understand. Secondly, you try to find other passages that will interpret this passage, and obviously that's what I was doing last week with what Jesus, uh, was, but there's other Old Testament passages that will interpret uh, Scripture. It's Scripture interpreting Scripture. Uh, The third thing that I do is I look at the law. Is there anything in the law that talks about this particular behavior? If it praises the behavior, then you can look at David as an exemplification of that law. If it condemns the behavior, maybe you can find in David some illustrations of the bad fruits that the law says are going to be able to, uh, to come out of that. And then in the case of our present passage, a look at the Psalms that David wrote when he was at Gath helped to interpret it hugely. Uh, Typically, commentators who believe that the titles to the Psalms are inspired scripture, like I do, uh, they look at this passage positively, while commentators who say, oh no, that was just added later on, that's really not an inspired uh, title, they tend to look at this passage negatively, and what they do frequently, some of my commentators anyway, is they're reading into David's life our cultural values, and they're judging, even condemning David, Uh, by our present cultural standards. And let me give you some examples of that. They condemn David for fleeing uh, from Israel in verse 10. They say, David was called by God to be the king of Israel. He's got a duty to stay in Israel. He should not be uh, fleeing. And I'm thinking, okay, I'd like to see you in those circumstances and see if you stick around. Uh, It's very easy from our armchairs to read criticism uh, back then. And I would point out that in chapters 27 through 29, it is quite clear God authorized David to leave the land of Israel, and that's for more than uh, one or two years. And so I really don't understand that criticism at all. The second thing that this commentator condemned David for was for being afraid in verse 12 rather than resting in God's will. And to him, this was a clear, clear sign that David was in a backslidden state at this particular point. When I looked up the the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for fear here, and there's a number of different Hebrew words, this is not the morally evil kind of fear. In fact, in Proverbs 24, verse 21, God uses exactly the same Hebrew word, and it commands us to fear God and fear the king, and it goes on to explain why. Because they both can do you in. God can cast you into hell, the king's got a sword. You need to fear both. And so the same Hebrew word commands fear of a king. Uh, Maybe you could look at it this way. Uh, We just came from the Grand Canyon, so I've experienced this very, uh, very close up. The closer you get to that edge that has no fence on it, the more you can feel this fear of heights creeping up into you. Now, it doesn't make me drool on my beard like David did there, But i tell you i just feel queasy inside and i get about five feet away from the edge i'm down on my knees because i don't want to fall over you know with the disorientation that takes place and that's a healthy thing isn't it if you didn't have that fear you might just walk off the cliff so fear can be a good thing fear can be a bad thing it's what you do with the fear that makes all the difference as to whether it's sin or whether it's not sin well um, this uh, particular uh, commentary treats uh, this fear as sin. And let me just contrast David's words in Psalm 56, which which came to him, he was inspired with them while he was still in Gath. The commentator said, this fear made David trust in himself rather than trusting in the Lord. Okay, Um, but that completely contradicts Psalm 56, which says, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. He's saying that while he is in their custody in Gath. Uh, the commentator said, quote, David covered up before God and instead of acknowledging his fears and doubts, and no man who covers his sin can prosper. Well, Psalm 56 says the exact opposite, and we'll get into that in a bit. But what I'm saying is you interpret Scripture with Scripture. Psalm 56 is one of those Scriptures that helps us to understand this historical passage. The third thing that this commentator excoriated David for was deceiving the king of Gath when he pretended to be crazy. Apparently he was supposed to just be transparent and open with this king uh, on what his ideas were. Now, we already dealt with that last week. Uh, we, during military warfare situations, uh, the, the whole area of pulling the wool over the enemy's eyes is perfectly legitimate. So I'm not going to get into that this, uh, this morning. Uh, I don't think it's a legitimate criticism. The fourth thing this commentator condemned David for was his undignified behavior, and I'll quote him again. What an undignified moment in the life of a man who had been anointed by the Spirit of God. How utterly unworthy of his calling was his behavior. What dishonor to bring upon the name of his God, And he says it was a, a sin. Now, so you, you try to say okay this is one interpretation does this square with the scripture you look in the law and you look and you look and you look and you try to find is there any place in the law where it says this is a sin well you can't and to add to the law is legalism and so uh y- this is what you have to do back and forth nowhere in the scripture is this condemned in fact one commentator said hey actually the way this is written that the hebrews would have been sure in this yay david pulled all over the you know the enemy's eyes one more time and so what I want you to do, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 56, and uh, I want to look at, first, uh, first of all, at the, the beginning, uh, the very, very beginning, the title. To the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands, a miktom of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Now, all of the commentators are agreed that the Hebrew is quite clear here. This title, if you accept it, this title indicates that the psalm words came to David while he was still held in captivity in Gath. He maybe didn't write them down then, but he was inspired with these words uh, at that particular point. And so some uh, some. People who think, well, they're not inspired titles. Somebody else put them on later. Say, well, this title couldn't possibly be correct because the psalm shows such faith and the passage that we're going to be looking at in First Samuel shows the exact opposite of faith. It shows fear. It shows trusting uh, in himself. And yet David does not deny his fear in Psalm 56. Look at verse 3. Oh, I guess I already read that. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Okay, so his fear of Abimelech Akish, which is another way of saying King Akish, Abimelech was a, a title. His fear drove him to trust in the Lord. That's the first impulse of his heart. And he has to keep repeating to himself, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to trust in the Lord. Why? Because he is afraid. He keeps feeling that fear uh, coming up. And uh, this psalm is so true to life. Some of the commentaries are not. They're armchair theologians. But what David is doing is he keeps pushing this fear back by allowing it to drive him to trust in the Lord. You see that in verses 2, 4, and 11. Now, the fear does not drive him to passivity. God gave him a brilliant idea, and we're going to be looking at that brilliant idea in a little bit. Okay, now turn back to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And uh, this is a psalm that was written or came to him shortly after getting out of Gath. The title says, A Psalm of David, when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Now in the Hebrew, the word when shows that David wrote this after he departed, uh, well, when he departed after he pretended madness. Okay, so it was likely written in the cave of Adullam. And uh, yet the inspired words could have come the moment uh, he walked through those uh, gates. We don't know exactly, but it was shortly after uh, he left. But here's the thing. This psalm looks back at what had transpired earlier and interprets what he did as being trust. So again, it's looking at the whole incident in a positive light. Contrary to the claim that David was trusting his own ingenuity, instead of seeking the Lord, they said he should have sought the Lord. Take a look at what verse 4 says. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. Now, when did he seek the Lord? Well, the implication here is immediately before being delivered. Immediately before being kicked out of the city. Well, what happened immediately before being kicked out of the city? He was pretending to be crazy, right? Verse 8 isn't remorse that he had failed to trust God. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So the whole psalm is a psalm of trust, and this is why I said that commentators who tend to take the, the titles to the psalms, not the English titles, but the, the, very, the title right before, that's inspired scripture, they tend to treat this, uh, the, the, this particular section in a positive light. It's uh, called the analogy of faith. You're allowing scripture to interpret Scripture. And when you're facing uh, emergency situations like David did, I strongly commend to you the reading and the singing of these two psalms. It will minister to you in a way that those legalistic commentaries will not. <laughs> and the reason it will minister to you is because David's life is so real. You know, he is trusting God in the midst of the dirty, messy situations of life. Life is rarely clean and neat. Uh, the way the textbooks say that it should be. And so personally, I give David a break here. Now, I know it's a long introduction. but because of William's question, I thought, well, it wouldn't hurt for you guys to see me back in my study wrestling with the commentators, wrestling with the various texts and trying to understand what does God intend in this passage. And with that as a background, let's go ahead and go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we're going to begin at verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, that may seem like an incredibly weird thing for David to do. Now, the fleeing, that's not strange at all. You would expect him to flee. In fact, uh, later on, Jesus commands his disciples to flee when they get persecuted. You know, when you're persecuted in this city, flee to another, says Matthew 10, verse 23. And then he says, you're going to be going through all the cities of Israel. So that's not the strange thing. The strange thing is why in the world would he flee to Gath of all places? Isn't Gath the very place where he's already killed over 10,000 Philistines? Isn't Gath the place that Goliath came from? Yeah, he was the champion of Gath, and he had killed their champion. In fact, He had made a big point of taking the head of Goliath, taking it over to the front of Jerusalem, who was owned by the Philistines at that time, plopping it down, in effect saying, this is your fate, guys, in the future. So he's made a threat uh, to the rest of the Philistines. And by the way, he's boldly wearing that sword of Goliath on his side. And so some people say, why in the world would David go right into the hornet's nest? Maybe he's not pretending to be crazy. Maybe he really is crazy. Okay, so they're wondering what in the world is going on. But once you realize that the same King Achish actually welcomes David and a thousand of his soldiers into his army and considers him to be an incredible asset in chapter 27. It's exactly what happens. He works with Achish for a number of years then you begin to realize this is more than simple desperation David knows something and even though it doesn't work in this chapter he does the same thing in chapter 27 and it does work this is not weird let me give you some reasons why this is not craziness on David's part first David didn't have a lot of choice he was surrounded and being pursued on all three sides by Saul who was also fighting the Philistines so he's got two choices either run backwards into the hands of Saul who's determined to kill him or run into the hands of Achish ahead of him. And so it's almost like God's providence has closed him in. So you don't really have much of an alternative here. Second, if David could get an audience with Achish, he was no doubt hoping that Achish would consider him to be a real asset as a defector. The Bible records defections going in both directions, and actually here just in the United States, uh, over our history, we've had some pretty remarkable defections from other countries, Soviet Union being where most of the defectors have come from, and we've welcomed them, right? Because we've got all kinds of information from them, so David no doubt was hoping King Achish would consider him to be an asset as a, a defector. It was a gamble, but it was definitely a worthwhile gamble, and to me it shows that David... Uh, is able to make quick calculated risks third ancient hospitality was legend not only in the bible but uh, in uh, all kinds of ancient cultures if you met somebody in war yeah you killed him if you met the same person in peace who came to your house you welcomed him in as a guest now may seem strange to us this was very very common in ancient cultures and i want you to take a look at chapter 22 And verse 3, where we've got a a successful example of this. And, And just realize before I read this, there has been warfare. There has been antagonism between Moab and Israel for many, many generations, going back into the book of Judges. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of moab and they dwelt with him all the time that david was in the stronghold and you can find many other examples of people crossing borders and getting hospitality in the enemy's territory you can think of the book of ruth you know where here's people who are dwelling in moab and then ruth herself uh, comes into israel fourth This was an age when mercenaries were often welcomed by neighboring states. Now, by the time we get to chapter 27, David's value as a mercenary will have skyrocketed. Uh, But um, the Bible records Jews who were mercenaries in other nations. Uh, You can think of Jeroboam in Egypt. You can think of others who were mercenaries in Israel, like uh, David's friend Uriah the Hittite. Or later on, Ittai the Gittite, who was from Gath. He defected from Gath with 600 soldiers. And in 2 Samuel 15, David treats him as an incredible asset. He treats him very, very well. In fact, later, actually, remember, David has all of these bodyguards who were called Cherethites and Pelethites. They're Philistines. So this is not an odd thing. Mercenaries many times cross borders. And there are a lot of people who believe that that phrase in verse 15, come into my house, reflects a request from David that he be a mercenary. L- let me just give you one commentary comment. Nikot commentary says to enter Achish's house means to become a mercenary for the Philistines. And then fifth, I have read stories from the Cretans, the Greeks and the Philistines, who by the way, are all related as people groups. Uh, I've read stories where they like almost doff their hats to the incredible valor of some enemy soldier. And uh, you meet him in battle, you're going to kill him. Even though I did read one story where they had wiped out every man in this, in this one city, in this incredible battle, and they saw this one guy. He had such valor, such courage, such heroism that they went ahead and uh, let him live. But certainly during times of peace, these guys had such an honor and respect for valor that many times uh, they would, uh, they would um, you know, let a person like that live. And so even though it was a huge gamble, it was not an idiotic move like some people make it out to be. You've got to read these passages in light of the ancient culture. I believe there was hope for David in going to Gath, And since every other escape route had been providentially blocked off, it appears to David, God wants me to go to Gath. And actually, he will use this to set the stage for chapter 27. So it's not wasted effort. Now, we aren't told which of those five reasons weighed heaviest in David's mind here. They all worked in chapter 27. What I want to do is I just want to back up a little bit and talk about this whole issue of fleeing because of persecution, or fleeing just because you don't like the level of bureaucracy or the level of tyranny that's been occurring uh, in a nation. It's been done many, many times. Uh, How many here have read the book by Kevin Swanson, uh, Second Mayflower? Nobody's read that. Wow. Okay. Oh, one has. Okay. Okay. The second layflower that Kevin Swanson is basically suggesting Christians ought to at least prepare for at least think about it, in case uh, this is something that is needed. Now, I'm not ready to give up on America yet, nor is Kevin, and I'm not convinced that there's a whole lot of other countries that are better to go to anyway. There are a few, but at least it's worth thinking about this issue. Now, some people have criticized Lisa and Ila- Isabella for fleeing our country And you remember the whole situation, Uh, the courts were going to take away her daughter and give it to uh, 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 a homosexual uh, who was not the biological mother, not an adoptive mother, not related at all. It's just a travesty of justice. But anyway, they criticize her and say, you know, she should not have fled the country because you lose all rights. When you leave the country, they can arrest you without warrant. It's actually not technically true, because our rights, according to the Declaration of Independence, were not granted by the American government anyway. They were granted by God. They're inalienable. So technically, you shouldn't lose your rights. But here is, here is her point. Look, my daughter was going to be taken away and looked like there was no, going to be no recourse. So... She felt like she was exactly in the position of David. Now, only time will tell whether her fleeing to that country, and I don't even know what country she's in now anymore, but whether her fleeing there is going to end up being a fleeing to a dangerous gath or it's fleeing to a safe haven like Moab. But I can certainly understand where she's coming from. She says, hey, all my rights have been stripped away from me anyway. These are all unconstitutional decisions that they are making. And so she's making a calculated uh, risk. And Christians need to evaluate all of the options that are open to them should an overbearing state want to take away your kids because of homeschooling or arrest a pastor because he's preaching against homosexuality or um, other unconstitutional things happen. Now, ordinarily, I think we should only think of fleeing if absolutely that's the last resort. Uh, David had tried everything he could prior to this time, But there does come a time when you need to consider whether fleeing perhaps is one of the best alternatives that are out there. This is not academic question. Right here in Nebraska, there were fathers who were arrested and spent time in jail over Christian education, and the moms had to flee the state with their kids. Okay, this is not just academic. Uh, Thankfully, those bad laws were overturned. But David's fleeing to Gath in this passage Because fleeing to Moab in chapter 22 are lawful options that God sets before us. Uh, Yesterday I got an email from Chuck Baldwin, and he gives all of the reasons why he moved to Montana. Very cogent reasons. Uh, I'm not planning to move anytime soon. But at least people are starting to think about uh, this type of thing. here's the question. Do you at least know what the options uh, are? Do you know which states are friendlier on which issues? Have you made friends with local magistrates? Are you willing to work for Steve should he ever run to be sheriff or something? <laughs> you know, do you know what countries have extradition treaties with the United States of America? Which ones do not have extradition treaties? Do you know whether you can actually count on your liberties being preserved there? Or is it going to be out of the frying pan and into the fire? This is not academic. We've got 20,000 Sudanese in Omaha right now because they've had to flee seeking amnesty from Sudan. These are live issues that are before us. Uh, And uh, they were facing death, slavery, sometimes even worse. And so uh, there's uh, all kinds of issues that these are relevant for. Uh, One that I uh, read a couple of months ago, just horrific. The sex slave industry. It's unbelievable how big the sex slave industry is all over the world. They're importing them into the United States. Now, should one of them escape and come running to your house? You better be ready to help such a person. The Bible would call for it. Now, in this particular case, we're moving on to point number two. It proved to be a mistake, though providentially God would use it to David's advantage later on. So let's take a look at verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not david the king of the land did they not sing of him to one another in dances saying saul has slain his thousands and david his ten thousands so his reputation has preceded him it's not entirely accurate he's not king yet i guess the media didn't get it right back then just like they sometimes don't get it right today but think of this if this is the rumor that's circulating outside of israel what's been circulating inside of israel it's no wonder that saul is paranoid you wonder, why in the world would Saul be persecuting David? Well, there's rumors that David's already king. Uh, he's a little troubled by that. So there's four things that worked against David in this verse. He had one shot at the king when the soldiers are escorting him into the throne room. He hoped he could finagle a deal where he could prove to the king, hey, I could be a great asset to you. But the servants are poisoning the king's mind to David before David can even get to talk to him. Uh, they're, they're, they're saying, look, this is the guy that's killed so many of your soldiers. He's killed Goliath. He's wearing Goliath's sword. And besides, he's the king. We need to kill him. Then we'll be uh, re, you know, done with some of our problems. Now, they didn't have that particular one uh, right. But David also didn't have a bargaining tool that he had in chapter 27, which is 1,000 seasoned warriors. Uh, And so there were a lot of things that went against him in this passage. So even though it was a worthwhile risk to take, it proved to be a bad move. So, point three, it's perfectly natural for David's adrenaline to kick in. They're going to want to kill him, it looks like. Verse 12. Now, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Now, we aren't told in this passage whether it's sinful Fear or whether it's uh, righteous uh, fear. But Psalms 34 and 56 make it very clear that his fear immediately drove him to the Lord. And uh, that was the first impulse of his heart. His next impulse was to take action. David never pit faith against action. We sometimes have a tendency to go to action before we even go to prayer. But he didn't pit one against the other, they were both present. So while his life was still hanging in the balances, he says this in the first verse of Psalm 56, "'Be merciful to me, O God, for men would swallow me up.'" And then there's this wonderful prayer that we're going to be singing after the, after the service is done. And then he ends the prayer by saying, "'For you have delivered my soul from death.'" And he's referring to the numerous times that he had been spared from being killed by Saul. "'You have delivered my soul from death.'" Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? He's saying, Lord, why did you preserve my life so many times if I'm going to die here in Gath? You're going to preserve me, are you not? This is, in fact, what he is saying. And in that, uh, uh, in that uh, psalm, he disciplines his mind, which fear is threatening to take over. He disciplines his mind. Let me go through the steps in this uh, psalm by meditating on God's promises, asking for God's mercy, fighting his fears as they come up again, declaring trust in God, asking God to judge the wicked, comforting himself that God cares about his sorrows, fighting his fears again, because they tend to come back, and they'll come back, and you got to keep pushing them down, declaring his trust again, making vows to the Lord, praising, thanking God. Those are all wonderful steps to resolving fear. And especially meditating on the promises, thanksgiving for God's goodness, and praise for God's power. Those are all incredibly powerful antidotes uh, to to being fearful. But somewhere in the midst of it all, God opens David's eyes to a brilliant idea, and we're going to read verse 13 here. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. We're not told what markings he was scratching on the wall, whether they're words or just regular scratchings. But between the scratching and the foaming at the mouth, it must have been a rather convincing performance because they think he's not just a little crazy. This guy's insane. He's out of his mind. And the reason I say this was such a brilliant move is because the Philistines happened to have a superstition about madmen. Let me read you about that superstition from a commentary uh, by Payne. He says, in the first place, the Philistines could be expected to relax once they knew that the man who had done them such damage in past battles was now insane. What harm could he he do them in the future? Secondly, insanity was often believed in the ancient world to be an affliction of the gods, and it was customary to treat madmen as taboo, if not holy, people who should not be harmed in any way. David's ruse was therefore quite clever and proved effective. So far from showing David at his worst, to me this shows both David's boldness and his resourcefulness. He's incredibly bold to go right into the lion's den, but he's also resourceful enough to know if this doesn't work, he's got ways of extracting himself from the situation. He knows how to pull the wool over the enemy's eyes. And by the way, for those who think enemies should not pull the wool over the enemy's eyes, read the law, read Judges, read Joshua, Uh, Stonewall Jackson loved those two books he said they're great war manuals and he said that uh, warfare deceit is a big part of that he said why in the world would anybody want to line up like the British did in bright colored vests okay Here we are, we're honest, we're going to not hide behind trees, shoot at us, and we'll shoot at you if you don't hit us. He didn't like that. He wanted to take every advantage he could of the enemy, and pulling the wool over the enemy's eyes was a part of that. And I think that some of these commentators who say, this is sin, this is wrong, would not make very good military strategists, okay? Thankfully, some of the commentaries actually get it exactly right here moving on it's clear that whatever wisdom David displayed in his acting it was God and God alone who gave the victory because even if Achish bought into this and he thought okay this guy is possessed by the gods uh, he could still put him in prison you know he wouldn't have had to have uh, let him go or 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 driven him out the soldiers could have complained hey there's something weird going on here he didn't act crazy like this when he came in Uh, and yet god allows achish to send him away look at verses 14 through 15. then achish said to his servants look you see the man is insane why have you brought him to me have i need of madmen and literally it's actually a lot more humorous because it's do i have any lack of (laughs) madmen one commentator explains this paragraph is also a humorous indictment of the philistines who can be so easily duped by the quick-thinking david Not only was Achish gullible, but by his own admission, the city of Gath is so full of crazy men they have no use for any more. Anyway, he says, Do I have any lack of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then the inspired title of Psalm 34 adds that the king drove him away and he departed. So he doesn't just escape. The king actually kicks him out. And so God's doing an amazing thing here. He's doing a wonderful thing, which causes David to say in Psalm 34, "'I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints.'" There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So that psalm indicates David was not simply trusting in his own ingenuity. He took God's supernatural presence into account. He took the angelic supernatural presence uh, into account. And when we are facing emergencies, don't just look at the visible resources, look at the invisible resources God has blessed you with. Now that's the meaning of the passage, as I understand it. And so in conclusion, what I want to do is I want to leave you with seven applications that you can take from these verses together with Psalm 34 and uh, 56. First, Even though we may face some difficulties that make our adrenaline rise to the level of fear, don't ever let that fear make you give up on God or bail out. Uh, Do what David did and say, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Fear is an incredibly powerful emotion. It can drag you away from the Lord and doing His will, or it can drive you to the Lord. Make sure it's always driving you to the Lord. Second, handle your fears with the remedies That David had okay he came to the Lord he 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 offered up his fears to the Lord Lord help me with this Uh, he asked God for help he immediately begins thanking God and praising God the acts of Thanksgiving and praise is one of the most powerful antidotes to fear and the reason for that the more you thank God The more good you realize he is. The more you praise him for his attributes, the bigger God becomes in your eyes. Your faith begins to rise. Your circumstances don't seem quite as big. Incredibly powerful antidotes. Third, don't stew on everything that could go wrong. Take action. Even if your action seems like it's ridiculous, take action. Philippians 4 is Paul's threefold remedy to fear and anxiety. He says, first of all, you've got to pray rightly. Some people pray in a way that just keeps their fears going worse and worse. He says, make sure you're praying rightly, that you're focusing in your prayers the way you should. And I'll let you read Philippians 4 to see how he does that. He says, secondly, you need to meditate rightly. Some people, they're meditating on all the things that could go wrong. No wonder they're fearful and anxious. He says, you've got to meditate on the right things. And thirdly, he says, you've got to take the right actions. If you're acting irresponsibly, be anxious See, if I care, is in effect what Paul is saying. You've got to be responsible. Do the actions that God wants you to do. And uh, David did not ignore his problem. It may have seemed a little bit ridiculous what he did here. And yet, think of it this way. You've got your own impossible situations, mountains of debt that seem hopeless. Anything you might throw at your debt just seems like it is as insane. As ridiculous as what David is doing here I'm never gonna get rid of this debt what you need to do is look at David's victories from the time of Goliath to this present chapter and all you realize all of his victories were David's weakness being blessed by God God took a stone nailed Goliath in the head with it and won a victory it was a weak type of a thing and yet it was an obedience of faith so here's your question what are your small stones that you're throwing at your Goliath of debt or your Goliath of family problems or your Goliath of addiction what are the seemingly insane actions they got to be lawful actions but what are the seemingly insane actions that you are taking as you offer up your weakness to the Lord and trust him you know when the disciples brought five loaves and two fish to Jesus to feed the multitudes, people could have turned up their nose and said, Are you out of your mind? You're going to feed the multitude with that? Well, they, they didn't know how it was going to happen, but they gave what they had to the Lord. And see, the Lord loves to multiply the loaves and the fishes. And we just need to be faithful with doing what we are able to do and watch God come through on our behalf. Do not be paralyzed before your Goliath. Too many people, they have huge debt. What do they do? Nothing. They're paralyzed by it. I said, you might not be able to do much, but do what you can. In fact, uh, Jonathan's father-in-law is uh, here. He gave me a book one time on uh, how, how churches and families should stay out of debt. And it's filled with all kinds of stories of how people did the itsy bitsy things that they were able to do. And they saw God coming through in absolutely remarkable ways. Our God is a God of miracles. He still is. And when we're throwing up our little stones at our Goliaths, when we're offering up our little fishes and our loaves, God can multiply those. But do not, do not be passive. God does not bless passivity or paralysis. He blesses men and women of action. Fourth, learn to worship God when you are in your gaff. That's Psalm 56. And I think this is the true test of men and women of God. They're able to praise God, worship Him, even when everything has gone wrong. Wasn't that the way Job was? He had lost his family, he lost his possession, he lost everything, and yet he fell down and he worshiped God. Do not bail out. Some of you are in a spiritual gaff. You just feel like this is hopeless. I've been taken captive. There is no way out of this. Don't think that way. Be men and women of faith. Be men and women who will worship God even in the midst of those circumstances. Fifth, learn to thank God when you're in the cave of Adullam. That's Psalm 34. Okay, that's after he gets out of Gath. Now, The cave of Adullam was a miserable place to be in, too. He's still in trouble. souls after him. So what he could have done is just mope and grumble about the situation that he was in. But no, he thanks God for God's victories that he's already given. He looks in faith to the future. And yet what many people do is instead of thanking God for the future, they're grumbling about the present. In fact, they were grumbling about the thing that God rescued them from. And they're just always looking for new things to grumble. doesn't matter how much God provides, they're looking for new things to grumble. And I say, first of all, when you're in Gath, worship Him. When He delivers you from Gath and you're in the cave of Adullam, praise Him. Thank Him for what He has done. Six, be prepared to flee by researching your options. Now this may be a metaphorical fleeing from sin, some lust. It may be a metaphorical fleeing from debt, uh, trying to get out of your debt, but it may be a very literal uh, 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 fleeing as well. It's obvious to me that David knew a lot about the Philistines, a lot about the Moabites. He knew the land of Judah. He knew where the caves were. He knew the terrain, what his options were. And even if you never have to flee or to use those resources yourself, they may come in handy for someone else. Uh, For example, it's helpful to know which states have the most freedom relative to homeschooling, which ones are the worst. Uh, I've got uh, a whole bunch of studies here that you guys can take a look at that are very recent studies on how each of the states rates on homeschooling freedom or educational freedom. Some surprising facts. On homeschooling, we rate number 19 here in uh, Nebraska. Now, we've got relative freedom in in Nebraska. That means there's 18 states that are a lot freer than we are. By the way, it ain't uh, Iowa. Iowa rates uh, 29. Okay? (laughs) Just wanted you to know. (laughs) Still pretty good. Iowa's still pretty good, but uh, needs a lot of work, so don't give up on Iowa. Uh, I've got another fat study in here that ranks each state on such things as gun control, seatbelt laws, licensing, just a whole host of other things. I've got studies that do exactly the same thing for other countries. And again, there were a number of surprises to me. Uh, One of the surprises is that we in America still are living in a relatively free country. We like to complain a lot, but there aren't very many countries that are freer uh, than America. Uh, One study ranks us as 77.8% free. The other is 74% free. And that that second uh, organization, the 74% one, they did massive research ranking countries on property rights, taxes, free speech, limited government, freedom of gun ownership, drugs, corruption, business freedoms, inflation. And at the beginning of 2011, America ranked number five overall. In Some areas they're down pretty low, but overall, number five with a score of 74 percent so here's the point these kind of charts will help you to realize okay i'm gaining a liberty by going to that country but i'm losing maybe two liberties it helps you to evaluate what am i losing what am i gaining another kind of research that's helpful in fact i brought several uh copies of this knowing your legal rights I've got several copies of a a two-page handout from the HSLDA that says what to do and what not to do when the social worker or truant officer shows up at your door. It is ignorance of your legal rights that gets so many people into trouble. Um, There are books that are written that deal with how to press the law for bureaucrats, use the law to protect yourself from bureaucrats, IRS and other agencies like that. Uh, two books that are available free online are a theology of Christian resistance, tactics of Christian resistance, and basically what they're designed to do is take you from naivete into making well-informed decisions. Some people want to leave America uh, because of the liberties that we're losing, and I'm saying, now where are you going to go? And they list one or two countries, and I say, look, man, you're going to be jumping out of the fire out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, There's a whole lot worse liberties that are being removed in that country. There are very few countries that are better off than America. Seventh, pray for fellow believers who are right now facing similar predicaments to David. Just this last week, I think I mentioned, Northern Sudan is bombing Southern Sudan. And there are Christians not only getting killed, they're having to flee uh, from this persecution over the last uh, several years Hundreds of thousands of Sudanese have had to flee from that country. There's other countries in Asia and Africa and South America where people have had to flee from that country to a more safe country. Well, you've all read some of the statistics in Germany where homeschoolers are so persecuted they've tried to flee to other countries, but unfortunately they've extradition treaties and they've brought them right back and permanently removed their kids just for the audacity of homeschooling. Sweden. They treat homeschoolers viciously. So what I'm saying is pray for your brothers and sisters in those countries. This is a live issue that we need to be aware of. Um, pray that God would give them wisdom to know what backup plans are available. When Gath didn't work for David, he fled to Moab. He helped his family find safe haven there. Pray for Lisa and Isabella who have had to flee to keep from having Isabella placed into a homosexual household. And again, we don't know where she's at. We don't know if she's in a dangerous gath or a safe haven. Uh, but pray for her. Pray for the Jackson family, military family in New Jersey, who the New Jersey, you know, just t- took their kids. They've been gone for over a year. They've broken several of their own rules in doing this. They've not proved the case against the Jacksons, and yet the Jacksons still do not have their children. So seeking asylum is not a theoretical issue. It could very well affect many American citizens in the future. Now, we're going to pray against it. are going to pray that it doesn't happen. But it's, it, it's best to be informed. And I think I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Father God, we do lift up our brothers and sisters in Sudan who have been uh, so severely persecuted for 50 years. And we pray that you would overturn the wicked... Uh, government of al-Bashir, that you would uh, bring uh, freedom and liberty to that nation. And we think of other nations as well that are heating up in their persecution against Christians, not just the Muslim countries, but Father Buddhist countries and and uh, 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 Hindu countries where uh, people have been out of their homes now in one province, orissa province, for many, many months. We pray that you would provide for your people, care for them, show your love for them. Do as you did for David and uh, miraculously provide uh, sustenance for them. But we pray as well that you would bring changes to those nations, that they would one day rejoice under a righteous leader and find the liberty and uh, the, the justice that your word calls for. We pray that we would be able to maintain the liberties that we have in this nation, that rather than them being eroded, that you would bring about whatever repentance is needed in our nation, that uh, those liberties would go forward rather than backward. But, Father, no matter what we have to face in the future, may we do it with the faith of, of David. We pray that you would help us to prepare ourselves and to think through all of the issues that need to be thought through. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.